our fellowship meeting, fellowship meal, a Thanksgiving meal, and I'd like you to tell me how many people you plan on bringing. Uh, you can email me at the Gmail account that's in the bulletin, or I have a handy-dandy checklist. Yes, I used to be a surveyor, um, but we need a head count so we can prepare. I'd like to shout out to Henry for wrapping up a, a deep study in the adult ministry training class. And next week, Lord willing, Gordon is going to be diving into a, st a study. Oh, that's a, on Jonah, that's a pun I didn't even know. And I'm just gifted. Um, but I'm looking forward to that also. And an important announcement for moms and dads, we need nursery volunteers during the main service, so please help out. We don't want our current workers to miss too many of the main services, so please see me or Catherine if you would like to uh, volunteer for that and serve in that way. Oh, there's one other announcement. I have some scripture I wanted to read to you that are very important, um, especially for somebody who's sitting behind me, um, Isaiah 26.3. That's awful lot like Marathon 26.2. But Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. And that leads right into another verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its, merit, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now the life we live is a marathon and we need to keep those verses in mind from a deep spiritual standpoint but also when you're actually running a marathon and finish it's quite an accomplishment. So if you know our pastor is limping around a bit I would stand but I'm too sore. And you might ask, why are there two posters there? Because somebody who did the first one doesn't know how to properly spell congratulations. <laughs> and for his many vehicles, a 26.2. Sometimes you can get these in a 26.4. And underneath it says, I got lost. <laughs> We're puppies. Can I sit now? Stay seated. But Thanks for the embarrassment. I appreciate it. Thank you. Love you. Love you too. Thank you. A reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7 in the New Testament. <clears throat> you know, just to do a little Andyism here. So when we were on vacation in Conroe, Texas, we, stayed, we went to a reform Baptist Church, and they made you stand for the reading of the scriptures and stand for the music and stand for the more reading of the scriptures and stand for the much, much more music. And everything except for the actual preaching 
<laughs> we were standing. And that was a lot of standing. <laughs> there were very few people standing at the end of the standing part. <laughs> but uh, We won't make you stand this morning as we read the scriptures. Uh, but just uh, think about what's being said. Uh, Christ here is <clears throat> continuing to, to speak on the mount. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use to measure it, you will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So whatsoever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who bears, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And the great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Amen. Thank you, Jerry, for reading these words of Christ. This chapter 7 is a great passage. We can hear the very teaching of Jesus Christ, who has the authority to tell us great truth. 
I've always found this one passage interesting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Somber warning uh, to think about and the very words of Christ. Today we begin in our prayer time. I want to also remember, since this is Veterans Day on Friday, I guess it was, and then uh, this week a lot of uh, activities went on to remember and honor those who served and are serving. My daughter is went to Alabama, her band, Army band, uh, was engaged in activities all week long in in, in honoring. I think that's great. I, when I grew up in the 60s, uh, the military, our nation's military, was not honored. It was during the time of the Vietnam War, and I say not honored in the sense of uh, the, as much as it is today. And there was a lot of um, angst against it, and uh, the soldiers, many of whom really had no choice since they were drafted in, were not treated with the respect and honor that they are due. And I'm glad the, um, the political winds, if you will, certainly changed into a better direction into where those that uh, have served and are serving are honored. Uh, God, in his grace, uses these uh, authorities, if you will, these servants, whether they're uh, uh, police or in the case of the military, to help suppress evil. And, uh, and our service people have certainly done that, and God has used them in a great way. I remember I was reading through Hebrews chapter 11. We'll get there eventually, and it, um, it does talk about uh, some who were engaged in, um, in war. Uh, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel are the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. God has used the military to suppress evil, and um, protect those things that are just and right. And even if we do it in an imperfect way, he certainly used uh, these uh, authorities to accomplish a, a great suppression of evil, for which we're thankful for. And I, in our prayer, I think we want to um, honor those that are currently serving and those who have served in the past. And I think we have a few military veterans here uh, I, I don't mean to necessarily single you out, but in um, cooperation, really, in commemoration of um, your compatriots, I ask you to stand now for those that are veterans among us here, and to um, uh, and let me pray for you and be thankful for you and others that serve in that capacity, uh, and and you will represent them uh, as as we pray and thank God for. 
his suppression of evil through the voluntary service of, of these. So if you'll stand now, and uh, if you are a veteran, please go ahead and stand. Don't mean to embarrass you. Thank you for standing. And we have several others that are not here today. But uh, if you'll stand and represent those that, are, that have served and are serving, and then I'll pray for us uh, corporately and for them, and thank God for the blessings that he's given to us in a free country. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we're able to gather together here in relative freedom and safety. All of this is a good gift of your hand, including the calling of many who would volunteer and uh, some conscripted but yet still serve and work to protect that which is truth and that which is right and that which is just. I pray that all of our engagements might be towards that so that your holy name would be exalted. We're thankful for those that are currently serving who we don't see the sacrifice and the work that they are doing, but yet you're using their um, commitment to continue to as an instrument to suppress evil and to make a way of peace. And we certainly enjoy the fruits of peace this day, and particularly in our country. And so we're thankful for the blessing that you have given to us for those that have, uh, have served and are serving. I pray, Father, that we would recognize, um, not lightly but greatly, of your goodness to us. We certainly don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be in a free land, in a free country, and enabled to be able to speak freely, and particularly to be able to speak your word without fear of reprisal. You have granted us a great opportunity here in this place. I pray that that will continue by your grace. I pray that we will continue throughout the years to be able to boldly proclaim the truth and that that would go forward and change the very hearts of men and women. I pray, Father, that all of these little ones that are blessed to be able to hear your truth, to sing your truth, to pray your truth, Father, I pray that you'd use it in their lives to conform them into the image of your Son. I pray that you would save and sanctify each one. And for those that would go on and serve, in various capacities, perhaps some even to help protect our nation. I pray that you would bless them and that they might do all things to your glory, which is for our good. And all of this brought out through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we exalt now and forevermore. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 361 in our hymnals. Let's remember to pray for Blake this morning. Uh, keep him in our hearts and minds. He has respiratory distress. And now you're just going to have distress as I have to take his place. <laughs> so. 361, we have heard the joyful sound. We're going to sing the first, the second, and the last. Thank you. 
over to 250, and can it be? But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8.
back to number 95. Number 95, Come Thou Fount. Malachi 3.10 says, I will open the floodgates of heaven and, and pour out a blessing for you. lights are different. I feel like I'm getting the tan up here. This is uh, amazing. Uh, what a beautiful day to praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, forgive me, I've got the sniffles like everybody else right now. But uh, this morning we're going to read uh, Psalm 143 in your pew Bible. If you don't have your Bible, that's going to be page 523. Psalm 143 in the pew Bible, that's page 523. Uh, just, I'm going to read a quick Spurgeon quote, and uh, I guess when I read this whole this this passage, I just really think personally just about unworthiness and how er- unworthy we are to, to stand before our King. And uh, if not for Christ, if not for Christ, if not for Christ, then we'd be all be destined to death, hell, and the grave forever. Um, I would encourage you to read uh, Spurgeon's mornings and evenings if you have time. It's just it's it's a great Bible study, but I was skimming through and, and uh, reminded me of a passage about unworthiness that uh, Spurgeon talked about. Let me find where I was going to pick up on this. On the cross he said, it is finished. And if it be finished, then I am complete in him and can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through, through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You will not find on this side of heaven a holier people than those who receive into their hearts the doctrine of Christ's righteousness. When the believer says, I live on Christ alone, I rest solely on him for salvation, 
and I believe that, however, however unworthy I might be, I am still saved in Jesus Christ. Then there rises up a motive of gratitude, this thought, Shall I not live to Christ? Shall I not love Him and serve Him, seeing that I am saved by His merits? The love of Christ constraineth us, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them. If saved by imputed righteousness, we shall greatly value imparted righteousness. Let's read Psalm chapter 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me, in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Again, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you again for this glorious time of fellowship. Uh, I want to reiterate and thanking uh, what Pastor Wayne said for all, all those serving overseas that, that fight for our freedom to do this every Sunday. Many, many fellow brothers and sisters hide and do this every Sunday. We thank you, Lord, for so many of the blessings, God, that you've given us that we don't deserve and just how unworthy and undeserving we are as we committed cosmic treason against you repeatedly. We're totally depraved in our sin apart from Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the sound of children in the church today. God, we want to pray for the salvation of all of our children. Lord, may we preach and live the word faithfully in our homes and set godly examples to point our children to Christ alone. Lord, we ask that you help us to be better servants in every aspect of our life, servants of the gospel of Christ to one another, uh, also servants, Lord, at, at home and at work. Lord, let the, let the world see a set-apart people that's, that, are, that are not living for this world but for the world to come. Again, Lord, we thank you for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition in your word. We ask that you continue bringing more brothers and sisters in Christ who desire holiness and have a hunger for your word. God, today we, ex- we desire to exalt your name, and we ask for you to open our hearts and minds through worship and song first, but most of all through the preaching and admonition in your word. We ask, God, that you break hard hearts today, 
Save anyone that doesn't know you. Lord, as we approach the holiday season, we ask that you give us opportunity and strength and bring Scripture to our mind to speak with lost loved ones, lost friends. We ask God for the offering today, Lord, that you help us to use it for your glory and for your glory alone. It's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Amen. So the Lord inspired Isaiah to write in chapter 58 and verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. Let's all stand and turn to number 82 in our hymnals and sing about that. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, number 82.
Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Amber. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews 3, the hymn that we just sung deals with the application, really, in a metaphorical way of this historical event, the children of God, the children of Israel in the wilderness. Our author, the preacher in Hebrews, expresses that very theme. And I've titled today's service kind of sermon, uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit, How to Die in the Wilderness. <laughs> I think that's a way to express his last warning here in verses 15 through 19, the end of the chapter 3. He's looking at the children of Israel really as, as a poor example. We have examples of how to do things and how not to do things. Well, this is a poor example. To, ad- to avoid demise in the physical realm, if you're out in a barren place, a wilderness, if you will, you would need to take some precautions to be prepared to have some resources and really a strategy to change course if necessary. We can look at failures from people who failed to do that and learn by example of how not to proceed. Vicarious learning, if you will. And that's what's really going on here in this section. We're given an admonition on what not to do. One of the purposes of the Old Testament, and there is a lot of it, if you've attempted to do read through the Bible in a year, or if you might make that as your New Year's resolution, it's going to take you a while to get through the Old Testament. There are various sections, but a large portion of it is historical. Actual events, physical realities that are recorded here to point to a spiritual truth. It provides insight into the human condition, exposed certainly to to God and his word and his truth, but under the influence of sin. It points to ultimately a, a need for redemption. And as the text unfolds, we find out that redemption is only in God, ultimately in Jesus Christ. Paul is going to explain that to that concept to the church of Corinth. And as a preliminary, I, you might want to look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 so that you don't think I'm off base with this premise. We'll go back to Hebrews 3. And then I'm going to actually go to a length at the historical account in Numbers 14. So buckle up, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells this church at Corinth, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, so he's speaking to the church, that our fathers were 
all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank this from the same spiritual drink. This, this baptize simply means to be immersed in. This, this is the environment in which existed. All of this that went on. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them. And then he says that rock was Christ. See, all of that pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that these provisions were made. If there was no redemption of man, there would be no uh, physical help here at all for them. That's the point. That is the goal. It's going to point to Christ. He says, nevertheless, verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 10, nevertheless, with, with most of them, not all, but most, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And historically, we're going to read an account, that is what happened. Now, he tells why this has been recorded for us, verse 6. Now, these things took place as example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's why you teach your children this text from Scripture. It, this is how not to flourish, if you will. Th- this failure then points into uh, demonstrating w- the end result of it, which is death. Verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. And By the way, idolatry is not just setting some little image up and bowing down to it. It is following the idol of your own heart and selfish will. It is not living in accordance with faith and trust in God. It is demonstrated that these who fell certainly were idol worshipers in that sense. Don't be idol idolaters as they were. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Instead, we must, put on, put, we must not put Christ to the test. This is we, we don't tempt God, but here specifically it is Christ. And some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all of these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, if anyone thinks he stand, take heed lest he should fall. You feel the great warning here? And then a reminder about this difficulty, this testing which could be uh, respond in faith or wind up a temptation and result in sin and a failure. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're not going through something extraordinary. God is faithful. Put your faith in him. He will not let you be tempted 
beyond your ability, but with that temptation will also provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Who's he talking to? To the church, to those that are in Christ. There's a way of escape. You can endure. And that's the same idea that the preacher of Hebrews is saying as well. You can persevere to the end. You can endure. Why? Because God is faithful. Previously said in the previous section, 7 through 13. Notice in the text, if you look back a, a bit, it begins with an admonition to persevere in the faith, just like verse 14 says. It says to persevere in the faith in verse 6. It's parallel to verse 14. And then it has this vignette, if you will, from 7 to 13. Those who are in Christ are, as I said, partakers and uniquely in union with Jesus Christ. So this warning then in verse 8, don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion, is likewise repeated. Do you see it here in verse 15? This section somewhat mirrors the prior section, rephrases it slightly, and has a nuanced glance at a different goal, and that is entering into the rest of God, which, by the way, is going to introduce us to chapter 4. But today we want to listen to this section here and learn the lessons vicariously, if you will, from those who rebelled against God. This is mentioned as in the days of rebellion. This rebellion is a bad example. Disobedience in this wilderness wandering southwest of the Dead Sea in an area known as Kadesh Barnea. Historically, I won't get into it, a lot of great things happen here but also something very evil and wicked in this rebellion where the Israelites were tested, but most of them failed. Their failure was simply due to this, unbelief. If you don't want to die in the wilderness, I'll make it real simple. Believe. Have faith. Trust in God and Him alone. The consequences of unbelief in their circumstance resulted in a postponement of promised blessings that they were given. There were some like Joshua and Caleb and others, no doubt, that aren't included, but these were highlighted, who represented those who had faith, who did believe, had great faith, But most, most were destroyed. And they were destroyed because of their unbelief. Their actions then, historically, become a sermon illustration here to this congregation in this sermon to the Hebrews, hearing this message for the first time. And it can be for us, too, hearing today. Now, since we're not as familiar with this 
and what went on in this rebellion, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14. I want to give you the background in Numbers 14. And then I'll attempt, as time permits, for us to make some applications, the points that are being made in Hebrews chapter 3 in this last section. But as I thought through it, I thought it would be helpful for us to really get a better grasp on what he's talking about. This audience that would hear this message for the first time would be very familiar. We're less familiar. So might we be reminded of it? And I'll walk through Numbers chapter 14 a bit at length and and just describe a few things by way of commentary. And I hope what you get out of it is, is the connection then and can readily see the application that will come about in Hebrews chapter 3 as this is being referenced. And before I get into this in, in length here, let me just give you a brief background of what leads up to chapter 14. God had promised the Israelites a land. They would have to encounter people, though, that inhabited the land. And God would use the Israelites to bring about a just judgment to wicked people who inhabited the land, and uh, he, he would use the Israelites to judge them, to bring about justice and judgment for the wickedness. God would favor Israel in this case, not because they deserved any of it, but because he is a gracious God and gave them this and gave them mercy. It's a demonstration of his justice and his grace. And here we see it played out in a physical way in this historical account. God would favor Israel not because they they deserved it, but because of his grace and his grace alone. Others, he gave them justly what they deserved. You have both expressions of justice and grace. So Israel then, hearing the promise, sends men out to, to investigate. We call it spying out the land, if you will. They find the land that is promised to them, to be rich in resources, as they would use the idiom flowing with milk and honey. However, it was occupied. It was occupied by an evil and yet overwhelming force. You can find that out in chapter 13. So they come back to Moses then to report on their investigation, their spying out of the land, And you can find that in verse 30 of chapter 13. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Well, let us go up once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Here you hear the expression of faith. How how would he know that they are able to overcome it? He is not trusting in his own power, but the very promises of God. Because God said... This you will do, and I will be with you. He, he was with them, remember, led them out of Egypt against a power far greater than this. 
And so here you have an expression of faith, not in Caleb's own power, but in the very power of God. In short, he believed. This is faith. He believed what? Wishful thinking? No, the promises of God, what God had said. Verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. (laughs) God forgot about that part. They're showing unbelief. Of course, they're stronger than they are. God would not want the people to get the glory. He would get the glory. God had promised them the land, but he didn't promise them it would come easy. It would be difficult. You know, and if, can I tell you this? I'm not going to pull out every application, but I'll just stop here when I think about it. And there are many, and I hope you'll pick it up along the way, intuitively. But what God calls his servants to do then and now and always is not a life of ease. It's a life of faith. Trusting in him. Paul was called to preach. And declare Jesus Christ. And he did. He followed him. Paul and Barnabas were preaching. You can find in Acts chapter 14. I'll I'll just highlight the text as a break here. He's out preaching. And as he does so, he's in, in Lystra. And he had left Antioch. And Jews from Antioch come down to Lystra to cause problems. And they literally stone him to death. And if you know anything about it, it's just an awful thing. They would have kept throwing stones at him and on him until there was nothing but a pile of stones. The first few to crush his head and body and the rest to suffocate him and put him in an environment where he couldn't free himself. So Paul's out preaching. God had called him to preach. He he preaches faithfully. They run him out of one town, so he goes to the next town, but they follow him and kill him. But God had other plans. We don't get all the details, but he rose up, the text would say. And the next day, he goes home and quits. No, he gets with Barnabas, and they go to Derbe, the next city. And continues on. By the way, I, I just just I don't know this absolutely, but I do think this is an explanation of the time in which Paul says he, he did have a vision of heaven. And he didn't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. It I, I think it had to do with this particular experience. And God wasn't done with him, so he rose him up. He had faith and he went on to preach, but it was very difficult for him. And this is what he would say in Acts chapter 14 and verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, 
They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. That is what is vital, to believe, to continue on in the faith. Even all the experiences that he had of of, of rejection and and ultimately this uh, very difficult time being stoned to death. And he says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He would tell his protege, Timothy, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Maybe one of the reasons we don't suffer enough of it is our failure to live godly lives. It is countercultural because you're calling people to repent and believe. You're telling people that they are wrong. And most folks, well, let me put it this way, all folks don't want to hear that they're wrong. In this life, it is metaphorically like a wilderness, a barren place, a wilderness of sin. And yes, there may be a flower that blooms for a little while, but it's going to do so with much difficulty. That is why your faith must be in God and God alone. The Israelites in Numbers 14, back to that text that introduced here, they hear the witnesses of some faithful men. They know that it's going to be difficult for them, but God has promised, and these men believe. But the crowd here doesn't side with the faithful, courageous men who are not putting their faith and courage in themselves, but in God They don't side with the few. They side with the many who say, oh, it can't be done. Notice verse 1 of chapter 14. All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Because to where we had it. So they take matters in their own hands, verse 4. Let us choose a leader then and go back to Egypt. They really mean that. You remember where they were? In bondage and slavery and in great oppression, physically and actually. And remember, this is metaphorically points to those that are in the bondage of sin and slavery. Oh, it would be better for us just to go back to that. So let's go follow somebody who will lead us in that direction who say it it will be okay not to believe the promises of God or the precepts of God. I'll choose my own way. God is gracious to them even in the midst of their rebellion. He grants them a mediator, a type of Christ in Moses, who leads them to what they should do, and that is repent and pray. That's a demonstration of faith. Notice verse 5. So then Moses and Aaron, they, they fall on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. 
and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. This is idiomatic of repentance, to tear your clothes. They would have been highly valuable items. They were, they were despising their own riches. In repentance, it was such a great sin. And then they said to the congregation, the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is, a, is an exceedingly good land. So that they emphasized what was positive about it. If the Lord delights in us, if he favors us, if he graces us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. In other words, here's faith in God to, to trust him that if you, if you believe in him, if you put your faith in him and your trust in him, what is going to happen? A great reward and great blessing, far greater than anything else. What, what do they want to do? Go back to Egypt? Go back to bondage? Go back to slavery? When God has promised blessing? Verse 9, only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land, for they're bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Here's a great testimony and message of faith, a call to repentance and faith, a call to receive the very blessings of God. And what is the response? Verse 10, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They wanted to kill them. (laughs) Now you know why I brought up Paul's preaching too. In our day, they they, they may not stone you with stones. In some parts of the world, they might. But they sure don't want to hear it. They don't want to have it. In this case, the glory of the Lord appears. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tent in the meeting of the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? Notice here, faith is what is emphasized. They're despising God because they don't believe in him. In spite of all the signs that I've done among them. I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit him. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses' response to this is thinking out loud, answering in prayer in a dilemma, because he knows that God has promised to accomplish this. And so God's telling what is the just reward of the rebellion, and yet God has promised to redeem a people. So Moses mulls this through, and that's this next section that you could read. But Moses said to the Lord, then, then the Egyptians will hear of it. That's the problem. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and, and they will tell inhabitants of this land, and they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you, you go before them. In a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, 
Now, if you, you, you kill this people as one man, then the, the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. This is a problem for Moses, not for God, as we shall find out. But yet he's dealing with this dilemma and doesn't understand how God in his sovereignty will accomplish what he has promised to do. But he prays in accordance that his name would be great and that his promises would be fulfilled. Verse 17, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Sin has its consequences. It it has its influence in time. That's what he's talking about. But notice this affirmation of who God is. He's slow to anger. How do you know that? They hadn't wiped them all off the face of the earth as we all might deserve. I like to quip when people ask me, how are you doing? I say, better than I deserve. That's every moment of the day, every breath that I get. It demonstrates God's goodness, his patience, his slow to anger, that is his wrath. And on the positive side, would you know God as someone that is abounding in steadfast love? If I have to describe that, it would be grace, mercy, and faithfulness all wrapped up in one. That is who God is, and this is why he forgives iniquity. But he will not clear the guilty. You will have to have your rebellion put on Christ, who atones for sin. He prays in verse 19 to please pardon the iniquity of these people. This is where he's acting in a mediatorial sense. According to how? According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. That's what I'm saying. It is God in his mercy that anyone continues life and breath and any kind of deliverance at all. So the Lord responds and said, yep, Moses, you, you, you get it and you understand it. It is because of the greatness, the glory of God that I will pardon. Verse 20. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Can I tell you that as difficult as times might be, if things don't seem to work out the way you thought they would, if things just seem to be in an absolute wilderness of darkness, and it can be, don't be anxious, beloved. Put your refuge and trust in God. The whole earth is filled with his glory, and it will be greatly manifested as he has promised. It will be filled, and filled in the fullness to where we can actually see it. There are temporal and eternal consequences of rebellion, however. And he picks that up in verse 22. None of the men who have then seen my glory 
and the signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Your, your unbelief has both eternal and temporal consequences. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit. What's his different? He's demonstrating regeneration. It's demonstrated in his faith. And it's described here as he followed me fully. I will bring into the land to which he went. His descendants then shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Verse 29, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upwards who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become prey, that is, prey to the conquering nation if they attempt to conquer them. He says, I'm going to bring them in. I'll bring in them, and they shall know the land that you rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, and you shall bear your iniquity for 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken, and surely I will do all of this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by the plague before the Lord. Of those men who went out to the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephthah remained alive. I wanted to give you the background on this event so you could better understand the situation into which this preacher in Hebrews is referring. You can better understand his point and then make further applications to what he is saying. So let's jump back now to Hebrews chapter 3. Based on what we have just looked at in our commentary from Numbers 13, that his, 14, should I say, in that historical record, look at 3.16. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? 
His point here is simply this. Beloved, there is no excuse for unbelief. What more could God do for them? What more could he do? There is no excuse for unbelief. In this case, he's, he's demonstrated this historically so we can see it in a concrete way. I, I know we're asking people to engage, you know, in, in, in their minds, but, but here he's physically showing it. All of these people were led out of Egypt, the land of bondage, by Moses. God had raised up a deliverer to rescue them. A deliverer from their people. He's a type of Christ. Moses spoke directly to the people on behalf of God. He himself performed a number of miracles. God had provided food and and water in the barren land and the wilderness. Not only that, clothes and shelter. They had provisions from God, miraculously. God had manifested himself to them, not just by day, but also by night, that he indeed was with them. There was a physical appearance in the cloud and the fire that they all saw. God had delivered the people, as I've mentioned before, from the greatest world power at that time. They were changed their mind and were reluctant and went after them, as we know. And so God just opens up the Red Sea. The, the people cross through it on dry land, and the Egyptians go to follow them, and all of them were drowned in the same sea. Do you understand the weight of this argument? God had delivered them, provided for them, protected them. And now they want to find some other way and somebody else to follow. How fickle is the heart of sinful man? And I think that's an important point to note. There is no excuse for unbelief ever. Here, you might want to look at Romans chapter 1. It des- Paul describes it in great detail. I'll just highlight an element. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of God because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone. Same gospel to all men, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The righteousness of God then is revealed, how? From faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous will live by faith. God God has revealed that truth in his word. But his wrath is also evident, verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They know the truth, but they push back on it. Like a giant spring that's constantly pushing against their ideas and ideology. Because he would say, for what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. How? His attributes, his invisible attributes, 
His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. By the way, the the word made here is the word we get poem from. It, It isn't like that God just put random information out there, like letters in a Scrabble game and throws it out on the floor. No, they're very organized, and, and they're sequenced. And the more we understand and know in our investigation called science, the more we find out how miraculous and marvelous each detail is from the micro to the macro level. God has made it plain. It is as though as you, you pick this up, in a book, and you think, okay, well, this certainly isn't a random letters thrown together on pages. These are words that have a specific meaning, that have a continuity from Genesis to Revelation. All of creation is like that, beloved. Every element of it. So therefore, man is without excuse just because of the creation itself. And men know that, and although they know God, they don't honor him. That is, they don't glorify him. They don't respond in thanksgiving to God for who he is and all that he has done. Instead, they become futile in their thinking. And then their foolish hearts are darkened. This is the hardening of the heart to which the preacher in Hebrews is emphasizing. Listen, hear, don't reject, don't rebel, because it's only going to harden your heart. And you turn from any chance of wisdom to absolute foolishness. I'm amazed sometimes of the, of the nonsense ideas that, that men have today about things on various levels. It is because their foolish hearts are darkened, and they were without excuse. They claim to be wise, but they become fools and exchange the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up <coughs> to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, when they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is indeed blessed forever. God has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in the very thoughts of man we call conscience. We talked about this, that this morning in our parenting class. There's an innate understanding of that which is right and wrong and your conscience can be informed or it can be hardened over, seared, as the scripture talks about it, seared by rejecting the truth. It isn't neutral. But ultimately, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And beloved, there is no excuse for unbelief. There is no excuse for rebellion against God. And if you rebel against God, you will die That's how you can die in the wilderness. Unbelief. No further proof is needed. Proof is helpful in affirming the facts. But God just calls you to listen to his voice. And don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. Back to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 17. 
Notice this idea of provocation. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Rebellion of unbelief is sin. Anything that doesn't proceed from faith, that is belief in God, is sin. But notice here in our text and in Scripture in other places as well, that it provokes God. The word translated provoked here, it, it means to be angry with or wrathful with, as we looked in Romans, that God's wrath is on display. How is it on display? By giving people what they want because it's going to destroy them. Our contemporary culture is fond of focusing on God's love absent of his wrath. God is often portrayed as some lonely, jilted lover, desiring company. That is a mischaracterization of him beyond measure. God is love, and I do want to affirm that. It is essential to his nature. I think love is best conveyed, if you really want to understand what it is, from 1 Corinthians 13. I've been through it before. Love is, as it's described, uh, I, I think uh, primarily patient and kind, as it described. Love is patient and kind. Patience is, is simply his, his mercy in not giving us what we deserve. The kindness is his grace giving us what we do not merit. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. doesn't assist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And it never ends. It is faithful. That is love. And that is who God is. To an infinite degree, he is holy love. But he doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, as our description of love says. He doesn't rejoice in evil. His love is a righteous love which responds to, correctly, in a, not in a resentful or irritable way, perhaps a way in which we don't fully understand because his love is absolutely perfect, but it doesn't rejoice in the wrongdoing. It, it does, however, rejoice in truth. This holy love responds justly towards evil and evildoers. As I've already read in Romans 1.18, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress his truth. His wrath, then, is a response to that unrighteousness of men. I would say it's secondary in that sense in his nature. In other words, if there wasn't this rebellion, it wouldn't need to be expressed. It is a righteous response, and it is against the very wicked. It is God who he hates the feet that make haste to evil, Proverbs 6.18. It is God who hates the sacrifices of the wicked, Proverbs 15.8. It is God who hates the ways of the wicked, 15.9. It is God who hates the thoughts of the wicked, 15.26 in Proverbs. 
And it, I think it is essential, beloved, to know the peril that you face in rebellion against God. And that is not expressed enough, I think, in our day. There was a man who rose in the pulpit on July 8th of 1741. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Perhaps you have heard about the message he preached that day. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what he was expressing. His text was from Deuteronomy 32. The, the foot shall slip in due time, as Edwards explained. His point is this, that we are all exposed to slippery places. We're always exposed to sudden and unexpected destruction. And we're liable to fall down on, on our own without being thrown down by another. And the only reason you haven't fallen is because God's appointed time has not come. It's great peril that they're in, and to not recognize that provokes God. And the call then is don't provoke God. Hear his voice. Don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. And one more point I'd like to make from Hebrews 3 is down in verse 18. And it does speak to God's punishment. Verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they wouldn't enter his rest? 3.18 in Hebrews, but to those who were disobedient. This is a, a warning, beloved, not to presume on the goodness of God. Paul would tell the church at Rome that you should not presume on the riches and kindness and the forbearance and patience of God. Understand this, that knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will punish evil and he will fulfill his promises to accomplish what he has determined. And he'll even use the plans of evil men to do that. That's this dilemma that faced Moses when he prayed. God had promised the people rest. How would this promise be fulfilled by a wicked and, di and disobedient people? Because, again, it would take the miraculous intervention of God to redeem a people for his name, a remnant who would enter the promised land, a people who he would build for his name. But be forewarned, he will punish rebellion against him. And yet in his patience, he will bring about the redemption of many. And their story stands as an example, even to this day, to learn about the very character and nature of God and the world in which we live. Punishment 
by the way, and I hope you noticed, it, it was more than just dying in the desert. As he describes their carcasses in the wilderness. But more than that, it's missing out on the blessings that are promised. It's a very positive thing to look forward to the flourishing and the promises that God has given. A true rest for those that are in Jesus Christ. And so it's a, it's a heartfelt call then to hear his voice. Don't die in the wilderness. How do you die in the wilderness? Well, you can rebel. You can sin. You can be disobedient and just not believe. The opposite brings about life. Submission instead of rebellion. Righteousness instead of sin. Obedience instead of disobedience. And faith instead of unbelief. He concludes it in verse 19, and we'll finish there as well. So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Without faith, it is impossible to believe to believe God, to trust him, to please him. Today, hear his voice and don't harden your hearts. Let us pray. Father, grant us then the faith that we need every moment, every hour, every day. I pray that you will give us great confidence in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Work dynamically in our hearts through the power of the Spirit to bring about great trust in you and the joy that you have granted to us in Christ alone. I pray this in his name. Amen. Beloved, I'll give you a moment now to respond as God might have worked on your heart or just to pray. Take a moment now to think and reflect and respond on these things. Father, we thank you for our great union with Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we look forward to the, the promised blessings that are here even now and those which certainly await. May we have great delight in you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're singing 632. A child of the king, we are God's children, and if children, also heirs. Here is Romans 8, 16. This is great delight as Jerry comes to lead us about the great blessings. I, I think we can be set aside here as a great warning to, to listen and not harden our hearts. But where, where are we going? Into 
great blessings in Christ. So I invite you to stand now and to sing of the blessings that we have in Christ as children of the King. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>